Amen. Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. Uh, I say scattered around. Everybody should be within the arm's reach of one. If you prefer a physical Bible, I prefer a physical Bible. I, it's just, there's just something special about holding God's Word. I, I don't know what it is. God just empowers it in some way. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, don't have access to one outside of this place, we would love for you to take that one home. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uh, uses his word, the scriptures, the, the Bible, to, to reveal himself to us. And we, we really, really want you to know God. And so it would be, it would be disadvan- disadvantageous. Is that a word? That's, I don't know. Anyways, yeah, sure. All right. So we, it, would be, it would be unloving to send you out the door without a Bible if you don't have one, if we believe that the Bible is the way you come to know God, right? Like we want you to know him. And so if you don't have one, take that one. It's just a cheap paperback one, but we can talk about a nicer one later. Roger Francis leaves his here like every third week. And so <laughs> just saying. All right, all right, no. It's, it's, it's got a nice cover, all right? <laughs> now, Ephesians chapter four. Uh, we have taken a break uh, we have taken a break from our normal, uh, our normal sermon series that we're calling the story of God for uh, the course of the year. Uh, we've taken a little five-week break uh, that we're mini-series, if you will, uh, to look at something we're calling hashtag gospel. The artwork's up on the screen. Uh, the premise is this. We want to look at how gospel realities, five specifically, gospel realities affect the way we look at and interact with, involve ourselves with things like social media. All right? And so in the first week, all right, we're we're only a few weeks in now. Uh, in the first week, we talked about how Jesus gives us a new identity. That God doesn't just save us, although he does absolutely do that. That God doesn't just save us. He also adopts us as his own. He calls us sons and daughters, right? And so uh, at, in light of that massive status change, uh, well, chasing after uh, identity through an online thing, well, that's a tad bit beneath us. That's what we said a couple of weeks ago. It's, those connections aren't a bad thing. I think God has given us those things as a gift to, to shepherd well and steward well. Uh, but at the end of the day, if we need them to find our identity, we're looking in the wrong place, right? And then in week two, last week, we talked about how Jesus gives us a new community, right? That, that we can and should find community in these other places. And that includes things like social media, right? Uh, God has wired us for community. And so chasing after community is a good thing, uh, but we should be very careful to steward the, our relationships well, because for the follower of Jesus, there's only one community that's got eternal legs. There's only one community that's going to last us forever. And it ain't your three best friends on Snapchat, all right? And so there, there's only one community that, that's permanent for the Christian, and it's the church family that he's placed you in, all right? So whether, whether your jam is Facebook or Kick or Twitter or Reddit or LinkedIn, doesn't really matter, right? Uh, even YouTube can be a social media thing if you use it a specific way. Any kind of online community where you're in, interacting with others, all right? And so the, the questions we want to ask is how does the gospel and what the gospel does change the way we use this? And so those are the, look, the truths that we've looked at so far. Are you all ready to look at the uh, truth for this morning? Our third truth? Well, I hope so. That's what we're going to do. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Some of y'all may be wondering if I was just looking for a way to teach through Ephesians again. It's only, it's only two of our five weeks, I think. Yeah. All right. In verse 17, we're going to pick it up there. The Apostle Paul says this. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Them's fighting words. Did you catch that? What did, what did Paul call them? Like, can I give you a life tip? If you ever want to pick a fight somewhere, walk into a culture and start calling folks futile, darkened in their understanding, and what? Alienated from the life of God. Oh yeah, and ignorant. Like, you want to pick a fight? That one's going to cause a ruckus. That's, that's how you pick a fight in pretty much any culture ever. But those are exactly the words that Paul uses here to describe people who don't know Jesus. He says Gentiles here, but he doesn't have the Jewish-Gentile divide in mind. He has the divide between people who know God and people who don't know God. That's what he's aiming at, uh, that's spelling out for us here. And so he calls them Gentiles in this moment, but he's using that kind of uh, poetically to say that those who don't know God, this is who they are. Futile, darkened in their understanding, alienated from God, ignorant. So Paul's saying here, quit walking, or, or living is another way we could say that. Quit walking as those who have not been enlightened. I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of an I'm enlightened and you're not kind of conversation. <laughs> Never fun, right? Never fun. And very, very rarely is it ever productive, right? Right? In fact, it usually makes the problem worse. To be on the receiving end of the I'm enlightened and you're not leaves you pretty sure that you want to punch the person. Some of you are just more honest than others. You don't even have to, you don't even have, to have those words spoken all the time. They can be unspoken, right? You ever, you ever heard the I'm enlightened and you're not tone in somebody's argument even though they never said it? I have. It can be in their attitude. It can be dripping in their tone. And whenever the I'm enlightened and you're not argument or assumption comes to the surface, you can pretty safely assume that that person's carrying around a good bit of pride, right? You can pretty much assume that there's a lot of pride in their heart. And yet that is exactly the argument that the Apostle Paul makes here concerning those who don't know Jesus. That he's enlightened and they're not. And so we're forced to ask the question this morning, at least I hope you understand that we're forced to ask the question this morning, no matter how this stuff may normally play out, is Paul here just completely full of himself or is there a way for this to play out that's both factually true and not entirely sinful? Right? Isn't that the question we're left with? Paul made the argument, so either A, Paul is a terrible person right here, or B, there's a way for this to actually be true and for Paul to not be an absolute jerk. So what do we do with this? That's the question we got to ask. Like what in the world can make someone else's claim of illumination prideful, but the, the Christian's claim somehow not prideful? How do we get there? In fact, it actually gets worse than this because uh, 15 verses before this text, in verse 2 of chapter 4, Paul tells us there that a core level character trait, a characteristic of a Christian is to walk in humility. So, is it ever 
possible to make this kind of claim and simultaneously define ourselves as humble? I think the answer is yes. Even though our knee-jerk reaction, even though we all want to say no, I think the answer is yes. And there are two absolute key differences between the two. Between the, uh, the arrogant version of I'm enlightened and you're not and the, the humble version of I'm enlightened and you're not. Two key differences. And the first of those two key differences is this. Who is the active agent of illumination? Who is the active agent of illumination? In other words, who's responsible for bringing that illumination to bear? Who gets the credit for understanding? So usually when someone says I'm enlightened and you're not, they, they usually have... They usually have this thing behind it, right? That, that, that they've come to the conclusion. They've been awakened to some depth of understanding that no one else has. Right? Um, even if there's, what they're saying in that moment usually, and maybe it's not all the, kind, all the time, but usually what they're saying is that they were responsible for figuring something out, right? That's certainly the way we hear it. That's usually what they mean by it. And even if there's some other influential person in their life that helped them get there, whether that's a parent or a teacher or a friend, whatever, even if there was someone else that helped them get to that point, they were the ones that clamped down on it. They were the ones that decided it was true. They were the ones that decided it was worth structuring their life around or, or following or being obedient to or declaring as truth. They were the ones that decided it was worth locking down on and they're the ones that get credit for figuring it all out. But that is literally never the case for the Christian. At least not an honest one. At least not one that, that rightly understands the gospel correctly because that's not how the gospel of Jesus works. Like we, we all probably know a jerk or two who calls themselves a Christian who carries that kind of attitude, but that's not who I'm talking about here. For there, there are people who don't rightly understand the gospel who call themselves Christians. But at the end of the day, the Christian who is seeing God correctly and seeing themselves correctly cannot, cannot congratulate themselves for anything because they didn't have anything to do with any of it. In fact, Paul fleshes this idea out in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, For you were saved by grace through faith, and this was not your own doing, as it a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul's entire point in Ephesians chapter 2 is to say that God is the one who revealed. God is the one who brought understanding. God is the one who opened our eyes. God is the one who made himself known. Not you. Not me. God is the one that illuminated their heart to understanding. God is the one who helped us believe. Paul's entire argument in Ephesians chapter 2 is to say God did it not you. God did it. And so the Christian can honestly say that they've been awakened to understanding that others haven't without falling into pride because at the end of the day, there was nothing special about them that brought that illumination about. It wasn't because of them. God just simply did it. There was nothing about them that earned anything or put all the pieces together or figured out how to solve the puzzle. God just showed his goodness to them and now here they are. That's the gospel. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I didn't go looking for him. He came and found me. That's the gospel. 
God opened their eyes to see his beauty. So when Paul talks about illumination here, he's not talking about intelligence or the, the capacity to put pieces together. And he's certainly not talking about the cultural trappings that enable one culture to understand the gospel better than another culture is able to understand the gospel. He's not talking about any of those things. He's not talking about anything intrinsic in us. He's talking about the fact that God has chosen some, not, not everybody. He's chosen some to reveal himself through no merit of, his, the, of their own. He has chosen some to reveal himself to them. God opened their eyes to see him. And when he opened their eyes to see him, he opened their eyes to see themselves and to see the world the way that God sees them and sees the world. And so Paul's point here, and remember he's talking specifically to Christians in Ephesus, right? His point here is to say, don't fall back into old patterns and worldviews. Don't walk as the Gentiles do. What are you doing? God has opened your eyes to see. And because he's given you eyes to see, and because you are a new creation in Christ, and because you now live and walk with this new community of believers, God has given you this incredible gift of seeing the world in a different way. So what way is it different? Well, he actually starts to flesh that out in verse 19. Verse 19, they have become callous. He's talking about the Gentiles here. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Anybody in here have calluses? Not like JB's guitar calluses. I'm talking about real ones from real work, right? I can't talk. I don't have any. I, I, I read and talk for a living. Right? I have less than he does. Right? Some of you, though, some of you have earned those calluses. And I'm of the opinion that, man, a handful of calluses are a testimony of a life well lived. They're usually testimony of a life spent pouring yourself out for the benefit of others. Man, calloused hands tend to tell a story, and it's the kind of story that folks like me who don't have any ought to pay attention to. Some of you have earned those calluses. But what do calluses do? They protect you from feeling, right? They're a, a defense mechanism that your body has to prevent you from feeling the pain that comes with repeated trauma. Something significant has happened there. You have, you have harmed yourself in some way, and so the skin overdevelops so that things that used to be abrasive and used to cause pain no longer affect you. That's what calluses do. They're a defense mechanism that your body builds up to keep you from feeling the trauma anymore. Not that the trauma went away, just so that you don't notice it. And while calluses on your hands may be a testimony to a lifetime of work, calluses on your heart don't sound so fun. Right? And Paul here says that not only do non-Christians operate with a different worldview than Christians do, but they're actually calloused against all kinds of impurity. They're calloused to sin. They don't even feel it anymore. They don't notice that it's a problem. The trauma has repeated itself so many times that they don't even notice the issue. They walk willingly into sin, not just unfettered by it, but sometimes outright celebrating it and thinking it's a good thing. This is why you've heard me or others say in the past that, that you can kind of expect someone who doesn't know Jesus to live like they don't know Jesus. You have to expect a sinner to sin. I don't mean that as a value statement. I, 
I'm just not surprised anymore when a non-Christian sins because, well, that's the natural disposition of a sinner. They're chasing after what they value. And the Bible is explicitly clear that until we meet Jesus, we value and chase after the wrong things. That's not a... That's not a a maybe thing. The Bible is explicitly clear that until our hearts are turned to God, we don't value the things that God values. We may accidentally fall into that every once in a while. That's a common grace thing. But most of the time, we're pointed away from him instead of towards him. That doesn't for one second turn sin into non-sin. Ignorance is not the same thing as innocence. But Paul's argument here is that the follower of Jesus has been, given, has been given a new heart and that new heart causes us to begin to see the world the way that God sees the world. It causes us to value and love what God values and loves. It causes us to prioritize what God prioritizes. Paul's got some words for the Christians that haven't figured that out yet. Look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. All right, so follow me here. The Apostle Paul just said that none of this will make any sense if you don't know Jesus. That's what he just said. None of this stuff will make any sense if you don't know Jesus, which means that we've got this weird dynamic in the room right now where all the Christians are going, yeah, I can get that. And all the non-Christians are probably pretty frustrated. So what do we do with that? Like, how do, how do we respond to this weird dynamic where some see and then others just can't see? Well, the answer to that is that we walk as humbly as possible while doing everything we can to live consistently to what God has called us to be, and we work tirelessly to explain to others while praying that God would give them the eyes to see it too. That's what we do. We don't puff up our chest as if we know something others don't. We serve and look for a way to communicate. Those are worlds apart. We don't puff up our chest. We serve and look for ways to communicate. So why those two things? Well, because 21 doesn't end in a period. It ends in a comma. So let's read 21 again. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, comma, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so there's the walking consistently part, right? Take off the old self, put on the new self. Take off the old habits and lifestyles and worldview and put on the new calling, the new lifestyle, the new habits, the new worldview. The Puritans used to call this vivification and mortification. To vivify means to see or to to focus your eyes and attention on Jesus. And to mortify is a word that you're probably a little bit more familiar with. It means to murder. Put to death your old self. So like I said, walk humbly and as consistently as possible with who you've been called to be. Now look at 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So we're constantly looking for ways to speak the truth in love. We looked at this uh, 
this one verse, 25, extensively several months back in our Ephesians series, right? And we said back then that this action, the action of speaking truth, is always about serving the one you're speaking to rather than serving yourself, right? I don't know if you're here, maybe you're new, maybe you just, it was a long time ago and you slept since then, right? That speaking the truth is an act of love that very well may cost you everything. It cannot be a selfish motive. It has to be an others-focused motive. And so it's always looking to serve the one you're speaking to. Otherwise, it's self-serving and it's out of bounds for the Christian. So there you have it. Walk humbly and consistently. Speak the truth in service to others. Now, some of you may be wondering if I was ever going to get to that second key difference between the arrogant version of I'm enlightened and you're not and the humble version of I'm enlightened and you're not. The truth is I've already showed it to you. Shown it to you. Showed it is the East Texas way of saying it. The first key difference is the agent of illumination, right? God is the one that brings us understanding. God is the one that opens our eyes to see, not us. The second difference, the second difference is the purpose for which it comes out of our mouths. What purpose does it serve? Is it, only ever, it is only ever appropriate so far as it's attempting to bring others to Jesus. So far as we're putting the glory of our risen Savior on display and inviting others to come to Jesus rather than exalting and serving ourselves. Those are also worlds apart. The heart behind the arrogant version of the I'm enlightened and you're not statement is to exalt and serve ourselves to puff up our chests. But again, that should never, ever, ever be the case for the person who knows Jesus and has been changed by him. Never the purpose of the Christian. Our job is to exalt God and serve others, not exalt, others, not exalt ourselves and serve ourselves. And Paul says that a lost world, a lost world will rarely ever see things the way that a gospel-changed heart is supposed to see them. But because we love others, and because we want them to know God, we make it our aim to seek out ways to speak through the noise and articulate who our God is and what he's done. That sounds like a lot of work, Woodard. Yeah, it is. And that's exactly what we're called to. Oh, okay, great. So what does this have to do with social media? How how does this affect the way I use Twitter? I promised you at the beginning of our series a couple weeks ago that each week I was going to give you a, a big idea and a frank statement, right? So what's our big idea for the week? Calloused hearts will chase after and produce things that are consistent with the value systems and the worldview of a calloused heart. Always. And your social media feed is going to reflect that. Your social media feed is going to reflect that. It it will. But the follower of Jesus ought to see through things that others don't see. Not because they're smarter than anybody else or more educated than anybody else or less gullible than anybody else. Not even close because their eyes have been opened by God to see eternal realities. They look through the noise at the kernel of what's going on there and see it for what it is. 
The follower of Jesus has had their eyes opened by God to find their identities in him instead of a fantasized avatar of themselves or anybody else. And they've had their eyes opened by God to fight for the benefit of their eternal family rather than temporary tribes. And they've had their eyes opened by God to see the sinful angles of things that the rest of the world just glosses over or maybe even outright celebrates. They're looking intentionally through the fog. Your social media feed is going to reflect the callous hearts that make it up. Not because Facebook is inherently wicked, although it may be for other reasons. Your social media feed is going to reflect the callous hearts that make it up because it's nothing more than a public forum for calloused hearts. That's how public forums work. Like seriously, did we expect something else? (laughs) Which means, dear church, that you will at times be lied to. Outright lied to. You will at times be told to or expected to value things that God very much does not value. In fact, he might have even promised his future wrath upon And a gospel-changed heart sees that for what it is and one humbly navigates or attempts to navigate the landmines for the benefit of their own soul and two, secondly, gently speaks the gospel into it for the benefit of others. Navigate and speak into, always trying to apply the gospel to the circumstances that are in front of their face at the moment. And sadly, tragically even, where this gets really difficult is that sometimes those callous hearts belong to people who claim to be followers of Jesus. And you don't know where to go next. So how in the world are we to navigate this? Like, doesn't this feel too weighty? And I think that's where our frank statement for the morning can come into play. If, and I legitimately mean if, If you're going to wade into the waters of social media, you better be diligent to answer a few questions as you do so. Be diligent. Question number one, how would God call me to see this thing in front of me? What's God's opinion on this? My opinion is supposed to look more and more like God's as I grow closer to God. So what's God's opinion on this? How does he see this? Number two, what eternal realities affect this issue? Forget about temporary timelines. How does eternity affect this thing? Number three, how does my status as a Christian, a child of God, and my call to walk in holiness before him affect the way I should interact with this? Does it harm my cause? Number four, how does the reality of ever-present sin in this world color this issue? If sin is never 100% gone in this side of heaven, that means sin is always somewhere buried in the kernel, somewhere under the surface even. If sin is always there, where is it hiding here? Beloved church, if you're not answering those questions as you scroll through your newsfeed, yes, even in the mindless moments, sooner or later you're going to end up in a bad place. It may not be immediate, it may take you a while, but eventually, scroll long enough, you'll fall victim to it. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. 
They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. I'm not anti-social media here. Unless your name is Garrett Rockefeller, I have more counts than you do. But this ain't a game, so don't treat it like one. It ain't a game. Jesus gives us a new wisdom, and that wisdom is desperately needed in the world of social media. Desperately needed. So how do we respond to God's word today? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ speak to those of us who, like myself, have at times been completely taken in by something I should have seen right through? How does the gospel apply to those who, like myself, have celebrated things online that, should have been dis- that would be displeasing to God? Or maybe presented myself in ways online that has blurred the truth? How does the gospel apply to me and others like me? Or if you're a follower of Jesus, you rest in who he's already joyfully declared you to be. He wasn't kicking and screaming on his way to the cross. He went intentionally. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the shame. His death on the cross was for your sin, including the online stuff. So repent this morning and press into him. But hear me, don't just lean into who he's joyfully declared you to be. Begin walking consistently with who he's joyfully declared you to be. Begin walking consistently with that. You can't earn status with him. He's given it to you already, but start acting like it. Don't pretend like your eyes are still closed. Begin walking consistently. You're going to need his help? Absolutely you will. He's pleased to give it. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well this morning. Put action to this. That's what this time is for. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. Seriously. I don't think you have to be a Christian in order to see and understand that our world is broken. I don't think you have to be a Christian to know that people often value things that are going to end up getting them in trouble. I don't think you have to be a Christian to know that you've been lied to in the past, especially online. What we've been saying all morning is that for the follower of Jesus, there's something deeper and more eternal driving this. Not in and of ourselves, but something God has put there. It's a relationship with him. It's a relationship with this God. He unites us to himself. He makes us look more and more like him. And it's through knowing him that we are given eyes to see. So that means that you can respond to God's word today too. And you do that by meeting Jesus. You do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that our sin is what separates us from him. He is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, but he's also perfectly merciful. And even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the Bible says. Jesus came, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus was raised from the dead, and the Bible teaches that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be, not, not can be, not might be, not, not created the potential to be, shall be. So maybe today is the day that you're ready to do that. 
call upon the name of the Lord, to repent of sin and follow Jesus as Lord. Now, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you. Man, I'd love to walk you through what that means. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Ephesians 4. Thank you for giving us eyes to see. I don't deserve to know you. I don't deserve to be near you. And yet you love. And yet you love. My sin is ever before me. And yet your mercy is more. God, as you open eyes, would you give me wisdom that's not, that's not inherently in me? I'm not smart enough and I'm not educated enough and I'm not, I'm way too gullible to navigate this world. But you are never done in by anything. You are never outsmarted. You are never overwhelmed. You are never too busy. You call me yours and you walk with me the whole way. Help me lean in. Help me lean in. God, for those in here who don't know you, would you, would you make yourself known to them? when we see your face that we are forever changed how could we not fall in love with the God whose mercy is more and the more and more I feel the weightiness of my sin the more and more your beauty and your glory and your goodness shine true save people today in your name amen and let's